Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQVD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we learn about Leonard Leo. The powerful activist, fundraiser, and longtime leader at the Federalist Society played an outsized role in the appointment of three conservative anti-abortion justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. Leo is also the recipient of the largest known political donation, $1.6 billion. And yet, little has been known about him. Now he's the subject of a new ProPublica investigation and podcast called We Don't Talk About Leonard. And this hour, we find out what ProPublica reporters uncovered about Leo's plans for all that money, which go well beyond the judiciary. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have you heard of Leonard Leo? According to a ProPublica investigation, he's the relatively unknown man who's played a very big role in creating the right's supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court. He drew up the lists of potential justices that Donald Trump released during the 2016 campaign, advised Trump on the nominations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, and helped pick or confirm John Roberts, Samuel Alito, and even Clarence Thomas. You know, Leonard, since you're the number three most powerful person in the world, we have to say. Yeah. Right. God help us. God help us. ProPublica now finds Leo has grander ambitions than remaking the U.S. legal system. And here to tell us more about their investigation and podcast called We Don't Talk About Leonard is Andrea Bernstein, who covers democracy for ProPublica. Andrea, thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be back on Forum. So tell me, when did Leonard Leo first come to your attention as, as someone worth looking into? So Leonard Leo, uh, let me just sort of step back from that question <laughs> for a moment. Leonard Leo is someone that uh, really most people have never heard of, even people who are sort of well-informed and whose lives are affected uh, by, by the work he's done and the judiciary in particular, 
uh, as we were working on this project, and I would tell people we were working on Leonard Leo, they would give me this sort of blank look. And then I would mention, oh, he is the guy who uh, gave Trump a list of potential Supreme Court nominees. And then people sort of said, oh, 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 that guy, that guy, I know who that guy is. And as we began to think about Leonard Leo and the enormous influence that he had on the Supreme Court, uh, one of my colleagues, Andy Kroll, uh, came across documents that showed that Leo had gotten control of the fortune of an obscure electronics magnate from Chicago named Barryside, $1.6 billion. And at the time it was made, it was the largest known dark money political contribution in US history. So we thought to ourselves, here's somebody who is immensely powerful, who already has had a role in getting uh, six of the six members of the Supreme Court conservative supermajority on the court and is someone who controls $1.6 billion. Where does he come from? And what does he want to do next? And that's what prompted our project. Yes. And so tell us, who is Leo? What were the early experiences that shaped him? So Leo has had an immense influence on American life. Uh, He is someone, you know, there are sort of people who are you know, known in the dark money world, but mostly there are people who are independently wealthy, like um, the Koch brothers, for example, uh, or George Soros on the left. There are people who have a lot of wealth and spend a lot of it to influence America, American political life. Leonard Lee is different. He grew up in a town in New Jersey, in central New Jersey, which has been described to us as sort of a place of kind of an identity of crisis. It's not quite New York. It's not quite Philadelphia. You don't know if your baseball team is the Phillies or the Yankees. And he grew up the son of an engineer in a house. I went to visit it, a very modest one-story house on a street where, where the houses were pretty close together, went to public high school, but was a real sort of, you know, described to us as kind of a, an outcast or an iconoclast from the beginning, from high school. He, during the 1980s, the, the Reagan era, uh, he, you know, when sort of most guys were wearing like muscle shirts or mustaches and, and the, you know, girls in high school had big hair. Uh, Leonard Leo was wearing shirts and ties to class and was talking about conservative values and was talking about being opposed to abortion from high school. In fact, one of the things I found out uh, by looking at his high school yearbook was that he was voted most likely to succeed. And his nickname was Moneybags Kid because from high school, he was very uh, interested in raising money. And in fact, he, he didn't sit down for an interview with us. And We'd negotiated quite some time over this, and eventually he said, yes, but only if you don't talk about my financial arrangements or my relationship with Supreme Court justices. And uh, we said no to that, but he did respond to our questions. So he said to us about high school and about that nickname that he had been such a successful fundraiser for the school trip and the, and the senior prom that uh, that's why he had that nickname. So here's Leonard Leo, you know, sort of anti-abortion, wearing suits in the 1980s. And while he is in college and law school at Cornell, which he completed in six years, a group of very conservative lawyers starts the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society at the time was sort of meant to be a place where conservatives could band together, could sort of huddle together for warmth. They felt like they were isolated. They felt like most law schools were center or left. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they created this organization, which Leo eventually went to work for, but not before, at age 25, 
he worked on research during the confirmation battle of Clarence Thomas, during the time when Thomas uh, had been accused by Professor Anita Hill of sexual harassment. Leo's job was to find, uh, to research and to get information that would bolster Thomas's side of the argument. And we all know that Thomas was confirmed. That was a really searing, informative experience for Leonard Leo. Yeah, he was only 25 years old, as I understand from your reporting, when he was asked to work on that. You talk about that being a searing experience, and you also talk about the 5-4 decision in 1992 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Planned Parenthood versus Casey to uphold the constitutional right to an abortion, that also being a shock that had enormous influence on him. Can you talk about why? Yeah, that's right. So that case, three of the authors of that case were appointed by Republican presidents. And that was a real moment of awakening for Leonard Leo, uh, in particular, in the sort of conservative movement in general, because what Leonard Leo came to understand from that is it wasn't enough to sort of do the work, elect a president, and then trust that the president would get the, you know, sort of, uh, in quotes, right person. Uh, but that, in fact, to get someone who would vote in rulings exactly the way that they wanted, the sort of most conservative, most hardline p positions on the judiciary, they had to create a pipeline where they would cultivate judges from, or potential judges, from law school throughout their careers and create a, a cadre of individuals who would be able to step up and fill these positions who they really mentored. Uh, many of them owed their sort of career success to Leonard Leo. And then when the time came, he could plug them into these judicial positions and have a judiciary which was not just sort of on his side, not just conservative, but that specifically agreed with his uh, very hardline conservative way of thinking about how American law should be structured. Yeah, people who would not at all give in to any countervailing mainstream pressures, I think you write. So he realized to make sure that your Republican appointees or Republicans remained stalwart, you had to play the long game. <laughs> right. And I mean, this was a real revelation in, in reporting this because, you know, I've reported a lot on politics. And, you know, I think my conception of the judiciary is where a lot of Americans is, which is that judges are independent. So they may have a sort of, you know, conservative view of things, or they may have a liberal view of things, but they're going to weigh the facts and the law, and they're going to arrive at the decision that they're going to arrive at. And what Leonard Leo sought to do in the federal judiciary, and, you know, so we'll probably talk about it in states as well, was create something different, which was to get specific judges who would be loyal to his positions and could be counted on to rule in specific ways. We're talking with Andrea Bernstein, creator of We Don't Talk About Leonard, a podcast from On the Media and ProPublica. And incidentally, episode three of that podcast will drop tomorrow. And I want to invite you listeners to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the influence of Leonard Leo or what reactions are you having to what you're hearing about him? What questions does it raise for you, as Andrew just brought up, about the integrity of our judiciary, the judicial nomination process, and so on? Or what other thoughts are coming to you or questions? You can email them to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can always call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Andrea Bernstein is a member of the ProPublica team covering democracy. You know, this notion 
notion of you really need to cultivate young, talented, conservative minds very early to be able to be the people who would offer you the kinds of decisions that you wanted later. You write that it worked really well with donors, that donors really like this idea. Can you talk a little bit about how he was able to fundraise off of this? Yeah, well, this is something that is a really a sort of specific genius of Leonard Leo's that we came to understand. And a number of our colleagues at ProPublica have been reporting, uh, we have a series called Friends of the Court, and they've been reporting, many of your listeners have probably heard about this, about lavish gifts that members of the U.S. Supreme Court took and, and in many cases did not disclose. For example, Clarence Thomas taking an Indonesian vacation uh, uh, on the tab of Harlan Crow, who is a Texas real estate magnate. Uh, Clarence Thomas also uh, received uh, high school tuition for a relative. Uh, Harlan Crow, this particular magnate, uh, bought the home that Clarence Thomas' mother's, Clarence Thomas's mother lives in. Uh, in another case, Justice Samuel Alito uh, went on an Alaskan uh, salmon fishing vacation with uh, another or, or two other extremely high net worth individuals, uh, Paul Singer, who's a hedge fund billionaire, and Robin Arkley, who is from uh, Eureka, California, uh, and who uh, runs a, a mortgaging business, essentially. And one of the things that our colleagues noticed as they were reporting this was that the thing that linked, for example, on the Alaskan fishing trip, the thing that linked these billionaires, Robin Arkley II and Paul Singer, to Justice Samuel Alito was Leonard Leo. These individuals didn't know each other, but it was Leo who made the connection, Leo who made the travel arrangements, uh, Leo, in fact, who made sure that Paul Singer got his salmon when uh, it wasn't sent to him uh, after the fishing trip. And as we began to think about this, we thought this is a really interesting role that Leonard Leo is in. He is someone who uh, is responsible for the nominations of some members of the U.S. Supreme Court or has worked on their, uh, their nominations or their confirmation battles, is friends with many of them, is certainly a, a close friends with Clarence Thomas, for example and who also has connections to people who have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happens uh, concurrently, before, after these trips, these meetings with Supreme Court justices, is that these donors give to Leonard Leo's causes. We'll have more about that connection on Leonard Leo after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about a new ProPublica investigation into Leonard Leo, the fundraiser, co-chair of the Federalist Society, who helped choose Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominees. We're talking about it with co-reporter Andrea Bernstein. It's also a podcast on the media, uh, and it's called We Don't Talk About Leonard. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions about Leonard Leo or reactions to what you're hearing about him, your thoughts about just not just our judicial and judicial nomination process, our judiciary and the independence of our judicial branch, but but what it's raising for you generally about the way that quote-unquote democracy seems to work in this country. Andrea, just before the break, you were talking about how Leonard Leo is very close friends with a lot of Supreme Court justices and that he has been able to connect these justices also with very wealthy people, with very wealthy people who end up being donors. And You also mentioned the name Paul Singer, and I want to say that one of the examples that you gave about the way that Leonard Leo can use these connections and use this money um, that was particularly striking to me was the recent example of trying to help Brett Kavanaugh when his nomination was in trouble because he was accused of sexual assault by Christine Blasey Ford. Can you just talk a little bit about what happened? Yeah, this is something that has never been reported before. So in March of um, 2017, so very early on in the Trump administration, uh, there was a group of donors that had been organized by Paul Singer, and Leonard Leo took them to the U.S. Supreme Court to meet with Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, which is something that Leo acknowledged to us. He said that... uh, Thomas is someone who uh, was one of the best teachers about the Constitution and the rule of law that he could think of to bring these donors to. Be that as it may, this is a group of high net worth donors that was specifically put together by Paul Singer so that he could pool resources uh, for conservative causes. And they go and they have this meeting and there's a very cold night in Washington for March. uh, And they come out very happy and then walk over to the Library of Congress that's just next door for a gala dinner with about 75 people. And a year and a half later, when Brett Kavanaugh's nomination runs into turbulence, Leonard Leo contacts a number of members of this group and says, I need $10 million. Shortly after that, there's a group called the Judicial Crisis Network, which um, really shows up uh, large, looms large in our reporting. It's a, it's a nonprofit group. It's a sort of dark money nonprofit, so it doesn't have to disclose its donors. And Leo was instrumental in forming it and has been instrumental in raising money for it over the years. And now, essentially, with this $1.6 billion he has, funds the group entirely. It's a group that runs ads uh, and does other things in favor of mostly conservative justices. So in September of 2018, when the Kavanaugh uh, nomination looks like it might go off the rail, Leo makes these, reaches out in this urgent way and says, I need $10 million. And very soon after that, this group that he's been responsible for raising money for starts running millions Mm. of dollars of advertisements for Brett Kavanaugh. And as we we know what happened. Yeah. And we have an example of one of those ads. Let's play it for listeners now. The accusations against Brett Kavanaugh are a smear, and the women who know him best dispute them. The girls who were his closest friends in high school 
had no choice but to stand up and say, that's not the Brett I know. Brett Kavanaugh is a good man who is incapable of mistreating anyone. He never became someone different after drinking. It never happened. Confirm Kavanaugh. Some people might be familiar with those ads, but yeah, we know exactly what happened. Let me go to caller Anthony in South San Francisco, who's online. Anthony, join us. What would you like to ask or say? Hello. Uh, I've been listening to this uh, here in my car, uh, uh, and I am just mortified. I'm horrified by these disclosures. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the name of your guests, but uh, ma'am, you have just uh, uncovered a complete perversion of uh, what we're supposed to have as a representative democracy. Money is, as speech is one thing, but this is cultivated. This is like a, a, a smart bomb. This is a, a missile headed right to the to the real values and uh, and desires of uh, of the general populace. What can we do about this monstrosity? It may affect people for the next generation, if, if not further. Thanks, Anthony. Have you been asked this, Andrea? What do you say? Well, you know, I mean, I think the one of the reasons why we wanted to do this story and this podcast, we don't talk about Leonard, was for precisely that reason, because we were surprised by what we found, Uh, even sort of, you know, understanding and being in a world of, you know, political journalists and investigative reporters who follow Leonard Leo and follow dark money in general. Uh, we were surprised uh, by the sort of power and influence and, and depth that, that Leonard Leo has had. Uh, and, you know, the first step is what we did, uh, which is what we do as journalists, which is bring it to light. Uh, and, you know, one of the things is uh, just a, a note on the name of the podcast and the, and the story. We don't talk about Leonard. Uh, we gave it that name because... And I, I mean, I have reported on some difficult people. I, I did two podcasts about Donald Trump. Uh, I wrote a, a book, American Oligarchs, about the Trump family and the Kushner family. Yeah. I've reported on people who do not want uh, to be reported on. And this was one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, because here is somebody who has $1.6 billion, and people told us, no one will talk to you because he controls everything uh, in the conservative movement. And we had people not wanting to call us. We had people not wanting to say things. We had people afraid. Uh, We had uh, cases where we um, would reach out to people who we, you know, understood to be supporters of Leonard Leo or, or people who were influential over him. And that's, you know, what you do in journalism, you want to speak to everybody. Uh, so we reached out to some people and it seemed like our emails were going straight to Leonard Leo's PR man. Uh, and, you know, that was sort of the depth of his control. Now, at the end of the day, we did get many people to speak to us. You will, you will hear them. Uh, there are, you know, judges and justices from state Supreme Courts. Uh, who spoke to us uh, on the record, uh, people who had gone to uh, high school with Leonard Leo, uh, people who had worked with him, people who had founded the Federalist Society, people who had worked with him on the confirmation battle. So you will hear a lot of those voices in the podcast, but it is something that people don't want to talk about, and it is very difficult by design to tell this story because one of the really unique ways that Leonard Leo exercises power is by raising money for groups that donate to groups that donate to groups right. that 
uh, are going to carry out his wishes and his allies' wishes. And that is um, you know, a particular challenge. It's a particular challenge for audio. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, we just really felt like it was so important to tell, and that's why we did it. And sort of that, for us, is the you know, sort of first step is, is bringing these things to light. We'll talk a little bit about when he does become a little more present, in particular in the executive branch. Like, for example, when George W. Bush became president, he really took this as an opportunity to have great influence. He was really somebody who wanted to push the nomination of John Roberts. And then I was struck by your reporting that he was also able to basically deny Bush his first nomination of Harriet Myers. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a really sort of complicated story because Leonard Leo was, um, by that time, identified by the White House by emails that we had uh, saying he was in charge of all outside coalition activity on judicial nominations. So he is someone who has a, a tremendous amount of influence and comes from, as we've discussed, a very conservative, um, ultra-conservative view of who should be on the courts. For example, um, his sort of part of the conservative movement was, you know, really didn't like Sandra Day O'Connor. They didn't like Justice David Souter. They just felt like they were sort of, you know, uh, liberals in sheep's clothing who are appointed by Republican presidents. And they wanted to make sure that there no more suitors, no more suitors was a mantra of, of the sort of the movement. So while Leo is advising the Bush White House, uh, Bush, there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court, Bush is second, and he nominates his counsel, Harriet Myers. Many of Leonard Leo's allies felt that she was uh, sort of wobbly on abortion. They didn't like her credentials. They pushed back hard. And, you know, sort of Leo was in this position of wanting to maintain his access, but also uh, wanting to get the person that he wanted on the court. And ultimately, the conservatives prevailed uh, in that. And Bush was forced to withdraw Harriet, uh, Harriet Myers. And his next nominee was a hard right conservative from Trent, New Jersey, Justice, who now Justice Samuel Alito. Uh, who had a contentious nomination, but with Leo and these groups that Leo has supported its help, uh, his nomination passed, and he is obviously still on this on the U.S. Supreme Court. I also appreciate that you report that Leo then realized that it was not enough to have a majority of Supreme Court justices to really do things like undo Roe that he needed to make sure that the court was hearing the right cases brought by the right people and heard by the right lower courts. And so can you talk about how after he had sort of, you know, the Roberts and Alito placements essentially done, how he turned to focus on not just state courts, but also state offices? <laughs> yeah, this was something that was really a surprise to us. So uh, one of the groups that JCN, the Judicial Crisis Network, has uh, supported and, in fact, been the largest and most consistent donor is the Republican Attorneys General Association. And when we started our reporting, we asked ourselves, why? Why was this group so important? I mean, you know, we began to understand JCN as sort of a proxy for Leo's wishes. He's not a formal part of the structure. He's not on any of the paperwork for the Judicial Crisis Network, but it is a group that certainly carries out his wishes. And we saw them putting all this money into attorneys general, Republican attorneys general. And we asked ourselves, what is that about? So we began to really dig deep into this. And uh, my colleague Ilya Meritz sort of 
particularly went deep in this area. And one of the things that he learned was that they did this through their solicitors general, which had sort of been a kind of sleepy, low profile position uh, until the Obama era. And then Leonard Leo had what was apparently a brainstorm, which was that solicitors general and state attorneys general were people who could get standing quickly with the U.S. Supreme Court, who could get cases quickly to the U.S. Supreme Court. So if they could be developed as allies of Leo, uh, if he could help install solicitors general who would carry out his wishes, then they could argue cases before Supreme Court justices and push the law in the direction that Leo wanted. And there is, in episode two of our podcast, we talk, we speak in particular about uh, a judge who is on the Ninth Circuit, which uh, includes California now, but who began his career as a solicitor general. And as we reported, Leonard Leo really helped him at every step of the way, making phone calls for him, supporting his career, urging President Trump to nominate him for a federal judgeship. And there became this pipeline from law school to solicitor general to judge, and then somebody who could be potential U.S. Supreme Court material. And it was one of the ways of making sure that cases got to the U.S. Supreme Court and were argued in a way that Leonard Leo and his allies would support. And this was a um, one of our sort of key investigative findings. It's obscure, but that is one of the geniuses of Leonard Leo is that he understands the mechanism. He understands how power is accrued and is thus able to accrue it. And his opponents, not so much. He's like um, Robert Moses in that way. He's somebody who sort of really changed the infrastructure of the judiciary, of the judiciary, but in a way that people around him don't see and don't understand. And that's what gives him so much power. We're talking with Andrea Bernstein, co-creator of We Don't Talk About Leonard, a podcast and story from On the Media and ProPublica. She's also author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions about Leonard Leo, your reactions to hearing about the influence that Leonard Leo has had. And uh, you can email them to forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum or call us at 866-733-6786. And Mick in Sebastian. Poll is on the line. Mick, you're on. Hi. Well, thank you for discussing this. Um, and Andrea, I just wanted to know, uh, in your research, did you find any evidence of this hap- this sort of thing, even anything vaguely similar happening on the left? Um, and I just kind of wanted to, I assume yeah. sort of the answer is no. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I just sort of wanted to point out the, you know, this this sounds uh, more like a shadowy cabal kind of activity than anything I've heard. Um, and well, Mick, thanks. A little hypocritical. Yeah, thank so you. So <laughs> we, there is a group that is sort of the left's answer to the Federalist Society. It's called the American Constitution Society. And the former executive director of that said to us, we missed this, in effect, we, even though we are court worshipers, which was the word she used, we did not do this kind of planning. And that is something we heard over and over and over again, particularly with regards to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is not to say that the left wouldn't spend money on U.S. Supreme Court battles or, uh, you know, advocate for particular people. But this idea of creating a pipeline was something that 
we have not seen on the left. Now, on the state's level, state Supreme Court level, one of the things that we found is that um, Leonard Leo, his groups supported conservatives who were running for state judges uh, all across the country. And he also um, personally got involved in sort of who would be chosen. This arms race that has developed in state Supreme Court races, there was just a judicial race in Wisconsin that cost $51 million, million, which was the most expensive judicial race in New York in uh, US history. And what we see in that race is that now Leo's opponents and the left and Eric Holder has a group are joining the fight and are spending money. But almost everybody we spoke to on the left when we asked them about this said, we are two decades too late. They started this much sooner than we did. Now, that said, as we were speaking about at the top of the hour, the Federalist Society and this sort of conservative legal movement did start into a reaction uh, from the sort of middle of the last century where it was felt like the lefts and center, the center left controlled law schools on the court. So they started in that reaction. But what has happened since, uh, they have really outpaced and outthought the left side of the political spectrum. And he's taking, Leo is taking what he's learned um, from building the machine that remade the legal system, based on your reporting, to law and culture and politics. So beyond the law to culture and politics, essentially. And and I actually wanted to play a promotional video that, that ProPublica uncovered that he, where he just basically says this. <laughs> I spent close to 30 years, if, if not more, helping to build the conservative legal movement. And at some point or another, you know, I just said to myself, well, if this can work for law, why can't it work for lots of other areas of American culture and American life where things are really messed up right now? We're coming up on a break, but tell me where you found that. So (laughs) we uh, obtained this video, which was from a organization that has been around for a while, but Leo took it over as chair of the board in 2021. It's called the Taneo Network, and it's a private and confidential network of conservative leaders. There are a lot of sort of the kind of people that we've been talking about, members of the judiciary, uh, law clerks, uh, people who work for attorneys general in the group, but also conservative bankers, conservative venture capitalists, um, certainly many from the Bay Area. Uh, There are athletes, there are members of the conservative media, and their ideas have this network take over all of culture. Well, we'll find out what he wants to do that for specifically after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're listening to Andrea Bernstein Bernstein describe her new ProPublica investigation called We Don't Talk About Leonard, which is a podcast on the media and ProPublica has put out, and episode three will drop tomorrow of it. Bernstein is author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power, and has also covered Trump himself. Today, Leonard Leo's influence is the subject of our discussion and also his broader agenda and influence on Republican politics and also on U.S. culture. And Andrea, I want to ask you a little bit about what he's kind of going after in the realm of politics or culture that you've been able to dig up. So it is, this is, a, it sort of is something that hasn't happened yet at this moment. Uh, but we, we clearly know is there's a few things that Leonard Leo is working on now. Uh, one is a sort of campaign against wokeism. Uh, we've heard a lot about that, what he calls one-sided journalism. Uh, and he has, there are a couple of efforts that we know about. One is that there is uh, something many of your listeners may have heard about called ESG, which has to do with sort of environmental principles for, for operating and investing in corporations. And he is leading efforts to dismantle that. Many public pension funds, I'm not sure if California is one of them, but many of them have been involved in efforts to uh, sort of use their might of their dollars to try to um, force companies to be more attentive to climate change. And Leonard Leo is spearing, uh, spearheading a countervailing effort uh, that would uh, you know, prevent that from happening. In, in some states, like for example, Texas has uh, made some laws that sort of really put stumbling blocks uh, in front of that movement. Another thing, another effort that Leo has now is called the Honest Elections Project, which has to do with voting. Now, what Leonard Leo says it does is make sure that only people who are, uh, you know, eligible and should be voting are voting. Uh, but many of his opponents say, no, the idea is to sort of prevent uh, people who are not Republican from voting. So we know he's working on that effort. But what we do see really clearly is this sort of coalescing of conservative power so that if there comes a point where Leo can use the sort of talent bank that he's gathered to plug into positions, he will do so. I mean, they, during the Trump administration, they spoke openly of their influence in putting people into positions in the Justice Department, the Agricultural Department, in the White House, all through the administration. And certainly, if there is a Republican who wins uh, in 2024, this network would be in place to plug in personnel to carry out uh, the wishes of Leo and the group around him. Well, Will writes, it seems the only way to mute the impact of Leo and others like him is to implement laws that govern the behavior of the Supreme Court justices who would undermine our democracy. That doesn't seem likely in the current Congress. Ethics codes can be ignored, so they are ineffective. Does your guest have a solution for this dilemma? What can we do to eliminate campaigns like Leo's taking over our courts and legislatures? Well, in response to our colleagues' um, uh, reporting, uh, there's been a number of efforts in Washington to sort of much more pressure on Supreme Court justices to disclose if they're taking trips and accept, 
accepting gifts from wealthy people. Uh, now, the Supreme Court has, you know, said it has basically rebuffed that and said it won't change. But on the other hand, we did see, for example, at the beginning of this term, Clarence Thomas did recuse himself from a case uh, that involved a former law clerk that had worked with his wife, Jenny Thomas. So why did he do that? Would he have done that you know, anyway? It's impossible to know the counterfactual, but certainly there's a, a lot of uh, sunlight being put on this. I mean, one of the big, big areas where this fight is being joined on the state is on the state level. And we haven't really talked so much about state Supreme Court justices, but this was an early and intense focus of Leo's. And as a matter of fact, uh, in the course of the reporting for this story, I came across a batch of emails that Leo had sent in uh, 2007 regarding he didn't like the way judges were selected in Missouri. Missouri uh, has a nonpartisan system, uh, sort of a panel made up of lawyers and political appointees. And he and his allies felt that that produced judges who were too far for them to the left. So Leo goes into Missouri and he basically tries to uh, break the system. He did something that was sort of uh, kind of Trumpian and sort of long before Trump in that he tried to uh, convinced the governor of Missouri to reject the selection of the judicial panel, which is the way the system worked, with the idea that once they rejected that, there would be some kind of crisis and that Missouri would re-examine its whole system of selecting judges. At one point, Leo sent an email uh, to the governor's chief of staff saying the fury of the conservative base mm. uh, would uh, be, you know, the governor would feel the fury of the conservative base if he didn't do what Leo and his allies wanted. And, and that governor, by the way, Matt Blunt, uh, ended up not running for re-election uh, not too long after that. So Leo lost in Missouri, but we see him sort of perfecting these tactics. Yeah. In 2016, when Justice Scalia died and Barack Obama uh, nominated Merrick Garland to be a Supreme Court justice, Leo pushed for a sort of similar kind of uh, disruptive activity. Just don't hold hearings. Just don't bring this to the floor. Don't bring it to a vote. Uh, and that is what uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, did at the time. He didn't. Merrick Garland never got a hearing, never got a vote, and obviously is not on the U.S. Supreme Court. So that was a sort of learning experience, as we see it for for Leo. But one of the things that we are seeing in state courts is that they've been such low information races. People don't really pay attention, and as people pay more attention, these issues become sort of more out in the open and more public. Yes. Well, let me go to Francesco in San Rafael. Hey, Francesco, you're on. Hey, uh, so I'm just wondering, do any of you have a hypothesis why the Republican Party is so much better at playing the game, at messaging, at working the system, manipulating the system? The Democratic Party just seems to Suck at it. <laughs> like, well, let me get, let me see if Andrea has some insights yeah, into I, this. I don't have a, I don't have a global theory about that, but I can say in this instance, what we saw is someone who really sort of stayed behind the scenes, uh, you know, created a network, a money network that was hard to track, hard even to talk about, and. 
uh, many people didn't know who he was. And one of the things that was so interesting to me, I mean, take Missouri, I was just talking about uh, sort of Leo's work in, you know, Missouri, very early work on state Supreme Courts. And I called so many people, including people who had served on the Missouri Supreme Court at the time, and I said, was Leonard Leo involved? Was the Federalist Society involved? And, you know, they would say to me, no, I, I don't think so. I don't know about that. I mean, you know, and then they would give me other names, but I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing away at it till I came across these emails, which showed that, yes, Leonard Leo was very definitely involved. So, you know, I found the same thing in Wisconsin, that it was not clear to even some people who were very close to some of these fights that he was working on it because he just kept a low profile. And this is one of the reasons why we wanted to do this story, because he's not like a rich individual who is um, sort of, you know, pushing his will onto the U.S. body politic. He is someone who has raised money, created networks, created connections, and then quietly used them to get his way in a way that um, sort of has made it, you know, confounding to his opponents because they can't even see it. Right. I mean, that $1.6 billion contribution is to this newly created entity called the Marble Freedom Trust, of which Leonard Leo is the sole trustee. But yes, there is, though, as you point out, more scrutiny on his activities. One is a result of ProPublica's reporting, especially with regard to the connections between justices and wealthy donors, and also the D.C. Attorney General investigating Leo for violating nonprofit tax laws, possibly enriching himself through his network of tax-exempt nonprofit groups. And I'm, I'm curious how significant you think this investigation is, if we could really see any charges against Leonard Leo. Well, certainly what we are seeing now uh, is something a little bit different. And there is a, um, a professor at Pomona College that we spoke to for this story, Amanda Hollis-Brusky, and she herself wrote a book on the Federalist Society. And she describes the moment where Leo, during the 2016 campaign, gives Trump a potential list of justices as an Icarus moment for him. So there was Leo. It's March of 2016. Nobody thinks it's likely that Trump is going to win the general election at that time, although, of course, he was, you know, going to win the Republican nomination. You could see that. And, you know, Trump was somebody who, you know, people who were sort of in the uh, Christian conservative mo movement told us was just anathema to them. Many of them just really disliked him. But Leonard Leo saw that by giving Trump the imprimatur of the Federalist Society, giving him these lists, he could help Trump win. But it meant that his role would become more public. And that's why uh, it's called this Icarus moment for him, that he uh, sort of steps across a Rubicon. Uh, and what has happened is that people have paid attention to him. He's become so effective, as we were talking about at the top of the show. He was, you know, got the uh, Neil Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch wrote on his U.S. Senate questionnaire that he has to answer for his nomination, how'd you first hear about this? And he said, Leonard Leo called me. So that is sort of the role that Leonard Leo is playing in these judicial nominations. So he's somebody that, as he's become more powerful, is becoming more public. And what we see happening is a couple of things. We see people pushing back uh, in his, he recently moved to Bar Harbor, Maine. And for those who listen to the podcast or read the story, they sort of both start out at this 
lavish party that Leonard Leo has. It's the night before Dobbs. And it's a party where some two dozen uh, state and federal judges are in attendance. They're some of the most controversial uh, uh, and influential judges in the country. Uh, one of them is Kyle Duncan, who uh, you know, provoked a lot of response when Stanford University students shouted him down when he went to speak to them earlier in the year. And they have this big party the night before Dobbs, and it is a sort of symbol of the power that Leo has had. But also, this house that he has is a, you know, sort of right on a street in, uh, in uh, Northeast Harbor, Maine. People can walk by, and after the Dobbs decision, people there started to protest outside his house and chalk outside his house. So he certainly is running into interference, uh, as we've reported on him and others have reported on him. Uh, the U.S. Senate uh, has sort of started asking about some of these donors that we've been talking about, Paul Singer and Robin Arkley and others. Uh, and then there was a complaint that was filed by a sort of liberal government watchdog about his taxes and whether he is inappropriately profiting off of uh, some of his nonprofits. Now, he's denied it. Uh, it has not been investigated. It is not dispositive. But you do see a situation where he is certainly coming under more scrutiny as his power becomes more apparent. We're talking about powerful right-wing activist and prolific fundraiser Leonard Leo with Andrea Bernstein, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Curtis writes, it seems as though the 2016 election brought the MAGA masses into the Federalist Society camp. Now, however, Trump faces criminal prosecution, and though his support still eclipses his Republican primary competition, it seems like there's a crack in the conservative political machine. What is your take on the Federalist Society's 2024 strategy? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, one of the things that we can see, for example, we were talking earlier about the Teneo Network. Uh, and many of the newer members of the Teneo Network, uh, so these were sort of people that kind of entered in the Leo era, were people who worked for Ron DeSantis, who uh, were running his campaign. Uh, and it was clear, or it seemed to be, you know, the way we read that was that sort of Leo was putting a, a bet on Ron DeSantis, uh, that he would be the, the next nominee. What happens next? We don't know. Um, we have heard that there has been um, some rifts between Trump and Leonard Leo, because even though, I mean, even Trump said this, Trump said that list and that Supreme Court nomination helped elect him. Uh, so Leonard Leo helped elect him. But we have heard that Trump uh, was, I think there's been reporting, I'm pretty sure it was in the New York Times, forgive me if I'm mistaken, but there, I think there was some reporting about this where Trump has expressed dismay because the judges that he appointed at the suggestion of the Federalist Society, not just Supreme Court, but other members of the federal bench, didn't rule for him mm -hmm. when he uh, <laughs> tried to reject the results of the 2020 election. So exactly what that relationship is, we don't know. All we know is that what happened in the past, that here were two people who saw it very much in their interest to work together. And that is what they did for the entirety of the Trump administration. Could it happen again where there a second Trump administration? Well, that's something that we would certainly be watching for. Well, listener Jim writes, hearing this episode, it's not lost on me that the activity of Leonard Leo is the very definition of the deep state that many of his right-wing supporters decry. Irony, question mark? Let me go to listener Monique in Pescadero. Hi, Monique, you're on. 
Hi, I was wondering, what is Leonard Leo's end game? What is he trying to get out of all of this? Yeah. And where Thanks. does this go? Thanks, Thank you. Yes. So I think one of the big, big, big things that he's working on, you know, and as we found since high school, he cared about this was abortion and the Dobbs decision uh, that overturned the constitutional right to an abortion was a big, big, big goal of his. But he has said he wants to move the whole country in a more conservative direction, that he wants media to be more conservative, education to be more conservative, uh, the sort of, you know, Hollywood movies to be more conservative. I mean, it is, um, you know, a big lift. The legal system is sort of a closed system and all of culture is, a, is not a closed system. Uh, but that is what he said that he wanted. And, you know, one of the things that we felt from sort of following his career is that he is never to be discounted because he really is able to put pieces together. You know, one of the people we interviewed for the podcast is a co-founder of the Federal Society named David McIntosh. And he talked about how Leo likes to throw parties with great food and great wine. And we certainly saw that. And you know, we sort of open our podcast with such a party. But that, that is also how Leo makes or wants to make people feel about the conservative movement. Like they're part of something really great and fun and wonderful. And that is what has defined his work. And, you know, hmm. he is seems to only be gearing up. And of course, he has that $1.6 billion at his disposal to do and what he wants with. Exactly. It's $1.6 billion. And you mentioned in your piece that his rhetoric recently seems to have become more extreme. I do want to play a cut from um, a speech that he gave after winning uh, an award from a major Catholic group. Catholicism faces vile and immoral current day barbarians, secularists, and bigots. These barbarians can be known by their signs. They vandalized and burnt our churches after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. From coast to coast, they are conducting a coordinated and large-scale campaign to drive us from the communities they want to dominate. Now, even if Leonard Leo is, for some reason, curtailed in some way in his efforts, it sounds like he's built something, Andrea Bernstein, and I think this is the point, something that... It sort of is bigger than him. That's exactly right. And as we can hear from that speech, he, even though he's certainly won a lot of things, he doesn't think he's won and he doesn't think he's done. Andrea Bernstein, thank you so much for your reporting on this and for explaining it to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to speak with you. Again, you can check out the piece, We Don't Talk About Leonard, the podcast from On the Media and ProPublica, We Don't Talk About Leonard. You can check out the third episode. You can also check out Andrea Bernstein's other writing, where she really focuses on the intersection of money and power as well. And my thanks to Susie Britton, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment with me. And you have been listening to Forum Listeners. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.